And when I was a brand new private in the army, I was 20 years old, and I continually heard something early on that I am not likely to forget for as long as I live. We used to hear our drill sergeants say over and over again during our training, when the time comes and you're staring down the barrel of your weapon, you need to be willing and able to respond because if you don't, the other guy will. And if he does before you, it's all over. And that's a pretty grim reality for most people to have to think about. But it is the cold, hard reality of what it is like to go to war. It's either him or me, and if I'm going to make it back home to my family to tuck in my kids at night and to kiss my wife, I better act quickly. For all the assumptions that are often made about all the altruistic purposes that men will willingly go to war for their country, the reality is that the moment that you are eye to eye with the enemy, the soldier isn't thinking about some greater, nobler cause to defend his nation and his flag. He's thinking about making sure his heart continues beating and that he can do all he can to ensure the same thing for the guys sitting right next to him. Now, it's the same kind of mentality this sort of situation that the Puritan John Owen had in mind when he famously wrote in his works, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In other words, when you're face to face with your enemy, with sin, if you're not willing to take aim and squeeze the trigger and put it down and eliminate the threat, it is very willing to take aim right back at you and it will squeeze the trigger and you will die. You have two choices in the middle of an ambush. You can fight or you can die. Those are your two choices. So what are you going to do? And as we continue thinking about Paul's letter to the church at Colossae this morning, we're looking at the first part of a principle that Paul works out for us with regard to dealing with sin in our lives. The put-off, put-on principle we often talk about. That Paul lays out. And we're going to see this this week, we'll look at putting on next week, but this week we're thinking of putting off. And so the question in our minds as we come to the text this morning that Paul's going to help us answer should be, what do I do with the ever-present sin in my life that is like a, a bathtub? And if, you think, if you think about a bathtub, if you have a, a tub of water, are we thinking about our sin And dealing with our sin as though we just dump a bunch of ping pong balls in the bathtub. And then our goal is to hold them all under the water at the same time. And I'm always adjusting and working to try and keep them under, but I realize I just can't do it because one pops up over here, and as soon as I move to get that one, another one pops up somewhere else. Is dealing with sin in my life, is that all all I have? Is that the best I can do, just seeking to hold a bunch of ping pong balls under the water? Because I know the more I try to do that, the more I fail, the more I get frustrated and realize that I don't think I'm ever actually going to be able to do this with any real measure of success. So what is the point? Are we really being called in our dealing with sin to ping pong ball submersion? Is that how we ought to live the Christian life in dealing with our sin? Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul says for us, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Now, if you consider the letters of the Apostle Paul, you will notice that most of his letters to the churches, he follows a very specific pattern. He will begin the letter with a theological framework, and then halfway through the letter, he transitions to the practical outworking of that theology in one's faith. So he begins with, this is what to believe, and then he moves on to, as a result of believing what has been taught, now this is how you are to live. So we don't just have the theology, but we also have its practical application in the life of the believer. Now, there are preachers who will say things like, well, I don't do application when I preach. I just teach the Bible and I leave it up to the Holy Spirit to apply the Scriptures to his people. But that's certainly not what the Apostle Paul himself did, is it? It's vitally important that we think about application. And we spent many weeks going through thinking about the theological implications of what Paul is saying. And now, this morning, as as we see this transition, we get into the first part of Paul starting to apply everything he said for us. As Christians, as we're pursuing our communion with God, if these things that I understand, if these things that I'm hearing theologically are not being worked out practically if they're not being manifest in my life, in my daily living, then what good is the theology in my head? It's not very useful. So Paul doesn't just leave us hanging. He gives us direction. And as we're going to see, as we reach this point in the letter, we've turned a corner and he's going to begin dealing with things one right after the other in explaining how it is that he's calling the church in Colossae to live. So as we get into it, remember this question of application that we're working out today. How do I deal with my sin and what should my life look like once I do it? Well, the first thing that Paul shows us in verses 5 and 6 this morning, do not attempt to make peace with sin. In 1783, the United States signed a treaty, the Treaty of Paris, which is still in effect today. It was the treaty putting an end to the American Revolution, and it established the United States, as it is today, officially independent from those British uh, tyrants. We got free, and for that reason alone, it is one of the most consequential treaties in the history of the world. The negotiation team was led by John Jay and Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. You've probably all heard those names. And during all of this, America was allied with the French and with the Spanish. And the the French and the Spanish did not want the United States to agree to a peace treaty apart from them. However, as the fighting continued in the Caribbean and Gibraltar, that's exactly what America sought because they thought they'd get a better deal if they had direct negotiations with London. 
The French had hoped that America would be small and weak and would stay between the Atlantic and the Appalachians, and the British would keep the the lands north of the Ohio River and the Spanish control the buffer states in the south. That a strong and economically successful America was in their interests. And again, in the, the French interests, those were cons- uh, they, they were convinced to give the new state and the land uh, up to the Mississippi River as well as all the fishing rights in, in Canada. So this, this whole treaty was worked out and they made peace. It was a lot of negotiating. But this enabled the United States to eventually expand westward to become what we are today. Now... Peace treaties like this are a big part of the history of the world, but if you'll notice in any of them, it takes a lot of talks, it takes a lot of negotiations, they require making new alliances, sometimes breaking old alliances, and there's just a lot of give and take that goes on all around. And so while peace treaties may be a good thing in international relationships, they are detrimental when it comes to our sin. Paul is unequivocal in his statement We cannot make peace with sin. We must put it to death. We must deal the death blow before it lures us in and attacks us and kills us. There are no negotiations. There is no dividing up the spiritual landscape where we let sin lurk over here and take the high ground over there as long as as we get the lowlands and the beachfront or we get the the most popular spot that we want. We can't make alliances with sin. This is a winner-take-all battle for the soul. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So you see, right out of the gate this morning, we see that Paul is pointing to the reality of the renewed Christian life. The new creation in Christ is not someone who underwent a few minor adjustments. We don't just have a remodeling of our, of our, our sinful propensities. We have a complete and total gutting and overhaul. This is a complete remodel from top to bottom. We don't simply add a new exterior veneer to Christian values and morality that only laminate our own own old nature and its value system. Paul doesn't tell us to put on new clothes over our old clothes. The old clothes must be stripped off and burned and done away with completely. When we are new creatures in Christ, we don't just need a few minor adjustments. Remember, we've looked a few times now that Paul keeps making Reference to the fact that as Christians, we have died. We are dead to that old man. We are dead to that old woman. We are called to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. And and every time we seek to go back to the ways of that old man and that old woman, it's like we're going back to an old, dead, rotting corpse. And maybe for you, you've been a new creation in Christ for 10 years or 20 years. And so you're going back to a corpse that's been there for 10 years or 20 years, and you're getting on your knees and you're putting your mouth up to its mouth and trying to put life back into it. You're trying to revive it. You're trying to give it breath in its lungs. But what a ludicrous thought that is, isn't it? And yet every time we go back to that person, to that old man and that old woman, and we try to revive them, we're trying to breathe life into death. But Paul reminds us, you have died. We are dead to that person, but we are alive in Christ. 
So we need to continue to put it to death that it not continue to rise up. It's an act of war that we must engage in day by day. And if we don't squeeze the trigger against our sin, it will squeeze the trigger against us. Now, Paul has some very specific things in mind here when he's talking about this old person. When Paul gives lists of various sins, often in his letters, we assume that he's probably addressing things specifically that were going on within the church that he's writing to. And we know, you remember, that Paul is dealing specifically here with the teaching, the false teaching of Gnosticism. And if you'll recall, as we talked about Gnosticism, remember we said that the Gnostics believed that anything that was considered spiritual in their minds was good and anything that was physical was bad. And so in the minds of the Gnostics, conveniently, it gave them the opportunity to do whatever they wanted to do physically because it was all evil anyway. And so they drew this sharp dichotomy between physical and spiritual so the two had nothing to do with one another. So if I'm doing it with my physical body, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal because it's already evil. What matters is my soul, is my spirit, as they would say. And so as they drew this dichotomy, they opened the doors to engage in all kinds of reckless behavior. And of of course, Paul now is taking that head on and attacks the most obvious place that uh, that goes along with this, and he's dealing with sexual perversion and covetousness. Now, these are twin sins, and they're sure to rise up in light of this Gnostic philosophy. So let's look at them more specifically. There's four types of sexual sin, first, that he says must be put to death. The first he calls sexual immorality. Now, the specific word that Paul uses here is a more general term that addresses many of the different kinds of sexual sin. It's it's every kind of immoral sexual relation in very much the same way that we understand when we simply say, as it says here, sexual immorality. It could be a whole host of things, and it is quite shameful. The Christian idea of chastity, this idea that a person would preserve themselves for a sexual relationship to be between only them and their spouse, that was something that was considered uh, very new in the church. It was always considered far more culturally acceptable around the world that people could be very promiscuous. Now, sexual promiscuity of almost any variation was, was tolerated in almost every culture around the world. So this idea of saving ourselves, preserving ourselves, having a gift from God to utilize only between a husband and a wife, that was as strange in the first century as it is today in the streets of New York City or Hollywood. I assure you that if you talk about sexual purity and the importance of saving yourself for marriage and confining your sexual relationship to its proper place in the West today, you will be considered an old-fashioned killjoy. But of course, we know the results of sexual promiscuity, and they haven't been pretty, have they? We have a 50% divorce rate in in the West. Abortion on demand is... Continually on the rise, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, fatherless homes, sexually transmitted diseases, countless broken hearts. 
It is no mere coincidence that the insane ideas being promoted today about sexual identity and gender identity and age of consent and what marriage is and on and on and on have taken on that form in the time that they have. Many of our woke neighbors call it progress, but the Bible calls it sin, and it must be put to death. It only results in brokenness. He also mentions impurity. Now here, Paul addresses a more subtle form of sexual immorality. It's not physical in nature, but rather he's addressing the mind, the imagination of the sensual heart. This is using the mind to conjure up images and fantasies or to imagine scenarios that excite our curiosities. This can also include things like watching something pornographic or reading something erotic that entices a person to utilize the imagination in an explicit manner. The result is that we begin to assume about other people that they are mere objects to be used for my desires instead of them being individuals with souls created in the image of God to be nurtured and loved as people to be, to be served and cherished. And so they become an end to the fulfillment of our impure imaginations. Third, he addresses passion or lust. This is the desire of the heart that leads to sexual excesses. Paul used the same word to describe the passionate lust of the Gentiles who, know, uh, who do not know God. And the shameful lust of homosexuality addresses in Romans 1. Lust is a disposition of the heart. For men, lust is often the product of engaging in the mind primarily through visual stimuli. For women, it is often emotional. It is often the result of engaging in what, what we just looked at with impurity. We begin with impure thoughts, and those impure thoughts, when entertained, become lust. Now, there are times when lust can describe something other than sexual desire, but in this instance, this is Paul's exclusive use, and this is why the ESV translates the word as passion. It is of a sexual nature. And fourth, Paul mentions evil desire. This is very much related to passion, but it's Paul doing what he often does. He, he stacks words to prove his point even more. He wants us to figure out what he's saying with clarity. They're, these are the wicked, self-serving lusts of the heart. It's not always wrong to have a desire. Now, let's be clear about that. It is not always wrong to have desire. It is good and right. For example, that a husband would desire his wife or that a wife would desire her husband. But there are evil desires that we ought not have, like the di- desire of someone else's spouse or for your neighbor. Now, in addition to these four sexual sins, also notice that Paul mentions covetousness. He's not merely pointing out a desire to have more than we already have, but rather he's pointing out something of an oughtness. It's wanting more than we ought to have. Well, how do we think about that? Who gets to determine that? Well, it's an easy question. It's it's an easy question to answer because what we ought not have is something that belongs to somebody else. So specifically here, Paul is dealing with these things that we want, but they belong to someone else, but we're coveting them in our heart and we're going to great lengths to try and get them. Now the mention of this at the end of a list of sexual sins is significant because it's intimately associated with the four things that we've looked at. 
Really, it's another form of the same evil desire that grows up inside of us. Except this one is concerned not with sexual things, but with material things. So often, if sensuality loses its place in a person's life, quite readily we replace it with materialism. We go to possessions, finding our our identity in the things that we possess or that we want to possess. And so it's, it's still having something in the mind that we desire and going out of our way to possess it. And more specifically here, wanting something that we think ought to be ours, even though it ought not to be ours because it belongs to someone else and we're going to do what we can to get it. That's serious. And Paul calls it, he goes further from covetousness, and what does he say about it? He calls it idolatry. But really, this is, of all forms of idolatry, this is the lowest form of idolatry. There really isn't much lower than putting our trust in material things to satisfy us. Making them the God that we serve. And there's a sense in which covetousness is even more dangerous than sensuality because it has so many respectable forms. It's not as obvious most of the time. If a man is looking at pornography or if a woman is committing adultery, it's pretty easy to diagnose the sin, isn't it? But so often, it is the successful, covetous person whom we honor. And so we need not be quick to to praise covetousness. And that's very serious because Paul reminds us in verse 6 that the wrath of God is coming. On account of these kinds of sins and many others like them, the wrath of God is coming and we ought to take that very seriously. Because there is a hell awaiting for those who are not found to be in Christ. The divine wrath of God is far worse than anything we could ever imagine and it will snuff out any opportunity for eternal life with Christ for the unbeliever. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever consider your sin in light of the wrath of God? Now, quite contrary to what we often hear today, one of the things that's so important about understanding what Paul is writing here is that he clearly articulates the idea that a person does, in fact, have control over their desires. Notice, this isn't just about external things. This isn't just about keeping your pants on, if you will, to deal with sin. No, he's talking about the desire itself, killing the sin that's rooted within. He's not talking about lobbing off a few branches. He's talking about getting down to the roots and digging them out and killing them entirely, putting to death passion, put to death evil desire, put to death your covetousness. The world tells us, That a person only has their own willpower to overcome certain actions, but they cannot resolve or cease to desire. And so they're powerless over their lust, they're powerless over their sexual orientation, and so we should never tell them otherwise. We should embrace it and go along with them in it. Even recently, there was a TED Talk, and then uh, soon after, a newspaper article in a prominent newspaper, both arguing for the normalization of thinking about pedophilia because of this very thing. It's a desire, and because it's a human desire that people have, it can't be controlled, and so it must be normalized. 
Now, interestingly, the frequent mantra that we hear is that abnormal sexual desire and behavior is genetic, and people are just born that way. Well, wouldn't you have it that just this last week, a major study was published where over a half million people were studied, and they were conducting this to determine if there is a so-called gay gene that is so often talked about, and the results were overwhelming in showing that there is zero evidence to suggest anything even close to a gay gene. Now, of course, that didn't stop the scientists from wanting to justify the results and even suggest that the results shouldn't be published at all because if they were, it had the potential to negatively affect the way that people think about sexual attraction and behavior. And so the results were published just last week, but a very small portion of the test is focused on what actually happened in the test and uh, what the results were. The overwhelming majority of the report was dedicated to explaining why the results shouldn't change the way we think and talk about homosexuality and whether or not a person can change or be encouraged to change the desires and their actions. That doesn't sound very scientific to me. But Paul's counsel is quite different, isn't it? It is based on the belief that the Christian is energized, the Christian is animated, the Christian is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and so no desire, no passion, no lust, no amount of covetousness is so entrenched in a soul that a person in Christ cannot overcome it. And so Paul can press us hard here, and he does so in our second point in verses 7 through 10. He reminds us that if you are a Christian, then you should live like it. It seems pretty simple, doesn't it? You see how Paul addresses the evil desires, the unnatural desires, the sinful desires of the heart. It's interesting because he says, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. Now remember, Paul's never met these people. And in saying that you once walked, he's making a lot of assumptions about his audience, isn't he? The main assumption is that these people he's writing to are Christians. He's saying, look, if you're a Christian, I don't have to know who you are. I don't have to know what your name is and what you've been through. I know two things about you. First, I know what you've been through, and I know that you've been through some stuff. And at some point in your life, issues of sexual sin and covetousness have been a part of your life. And second, I know that if you are truly regenerate, these things don't mark you. These things don't identify you in the way that they once did because you have died with Christ and you're alive in Him and not in the grips of sin. So you see, Paul says the exact opposite of what we hear from the world. The world tells us that we are what we are. We cannot change, nor should we try to change, or should we encourage others to change. No, Paul writes, you can change, you must change, and indeed, if you are in Christ, you have been changed. That's a hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. You're a new creation, you've been changed. And so without saying it outright, Paul is giving this imperative. If you are a Christian, live like it. See to it that your life looks like a Christian life. And he goes beyond what we saw before and he draws out even more imperatives to put off. He mentions anger. We all know what anger is, that growing inner rage. It expands inside of us 
like putting air into a balloon. It grows and it grows and it grows the longer we allow it to remain. He mentions wrath. Well, if we keep putting air into that balloon, what's going to happen? Eventually, it's going to burst, and all that air is going to come rushing out immediately. That's the wrath of man. It's anger spilling over. Anger, wrath, put it off. He says malice. This viciousness of the heart that has an attitude toward others with evil intent. If you're malicious, you're rejoicing in another person's misery. You're rejoicing in another person's failures. A good example of this you'll remember from the book of Ruth. Remember when Haman built the gallows for Mordecai? He was filled with joy over the whole thing. He was very malicious. He couldn't wait for Malachi to be killed. That's malice. Slander. Slander is hurtful speech that will defame a person's character. It will ruin their reputation. It's important as Christians to maintain a good reputation. And in fact, it's a qualification for a man to hold an office within the church. To be an elder or deacon in the church, he must have a good reputation. And we recognize how important in our culture, how, how important it is to maintain our own reputation because we have an obligation to ensure that we are not ruining someone else's life. Slander in our culture is considered so heinous that there are laws to protect us from being slandered under certain circumstances, specifically when things that are being said are completely untrue. Slander can completely ruin someone's livelihood, and Christians should take no part in it. He also mentions obscene talk. Now, more specifically, what Paul's referring to is foul and abusive speech. This is speech that is intended to be cutting It's intended to be offensive and abrasive toward other people. It's the words that we hear, and when we hear them, we hear them with sort of with the feeling that the knife is entering through the ribs and straight into the heart or straight into the back. It's the words that people use sometimes that will leave lasting marks. Maybe something was said to you in your childhood, and even now you remember it because it was so harmful to you. Maybe a family member or a boss or, or someone who only seems to know how to communicate through abusive, negative words and it just stings all the time and you're always beat down by them when you're around them because the things they say and the way that they say them. That's what Paul has in mind here and often that comes out in a flurry of vulgar language. And he's saying, put that off. And so Paul points to these things and he says, are these part of your life? Put them off. In fact, in chapter 4, we see this again where he instructs the Colossians to let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Very different from angry, wrathful, malicious, obscene talk that he's referencing here. He's simply pointing out that Christians will and must have self-control. If you are a Christian... Live like it. And living like a Christian means you will live a life of self-control because it is the fruit of the Spirit. And you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you who helps you, who keeps you, and who gives you all that you need in order that you can be self-controlled. But he's not done, is he? Look at verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another. Lying is a great sin against God and against the church and against love. 
This is why God struck down, you remember, Ananias and Sapphira in the first church. He wanted truth, not deception, not hypocrisy. Obviously, God takes lying very seriously. He solidified his command in the Decalogue in the Ninth Commandment. I think one of the greatest explanations of the Ninth Commandment is in the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every the devil himself uses. And they would call down on, my, on me God's intense anger. I should love the truth. Speak it candidly and openly acknowledge it, and I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. It would prove very difficult for you to ever find anyone, Christian or not, who disagrees with the ninth commandment. We all know that lying is wrong. But isn't it interesting that among all of the commandments, this one is so widely accepted as important and yet so uh, probably most frequently among the Ten Commandments, disobeyed in our daily lives. A writer from Time Magazine once wrote, The injunction against bearing false witness, branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked ambivalent, conflicting emotions. On the one hand, nearly everybody condemns lying. On the other, nearly everyone does it every single day. And then he adds this biting rebuke. How many of the Ten Commandments can be broken so easily and with so little risk of detection over the telephone? (laughs) But we think because lying can't be easily detected that it's not a big deal. And so we justify our lies, or we, we think lying will keep us from having to admit an uncomfortable truth, or it will keep us from having to hurt someone's feelings, or whatever, but it will always come back to hurt us and others. Lying is never neutral, and Paul is reminding us that lying has no place in the church. And so Paul presses his point even more. Seeing that you have put off the old, he's making the assumption, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Are you a Christian? Then you have died with Christ, and in dying with Christ, you have put off the old self. And so since you have put off the old self, you have to put off all the behaviors and all of the desires of the old self as well. And you might be thinking, well, that's easy for you to say, but you don't know what's going on in my heart. Well, I probably know better than you think you know what's going on in your heart because the same things go on in my heart. I know very well the reality of how difficult it is to take aim at sin in my own heart's desires. But I also know that the only way any of this is remotely possible is because of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He is and all that He has done. You may be hearing all of this and say, there's no way I can possibly deal with these desires that you speak of in my heart. And I will say, on your own, you are 100% correct. You cannot deal with sinful desires on your own. You will continue to run back to them. No amount of willpower will conquer your sin. 
And yet your sin has been conquered in Jesus Christ if you are in Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life that God demands of you to live. That all of these things, not only not desires of the heart, not only not done, but never at all something that Christ entertained or did. And he did that on behalf of all who would believe in him. He lived a perfect life from start to finish. And he died a sinner's death, taking the place of all who would have faith in him, receiving upon himself the very thing that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in the text, the full weight of the wrath of God that is reserved for you and for me. He took it on himself, dying upon the cross, that we need not suffer the wrath of God being buried in the grave for three days to conquer sin, but also to conquer death, being raised on the third day that he might rule and reign forever. And by faith, he invites us to come and rule and reign alongside him forever, not facing sin and death as the final judgment, but at the final judgment, standing before the Father and hearing the glorious truth that we are declared not guilty. Not because we aren't guilty, not because we haven't sinned, but because Christ lived and died in our place and it was counted as good for us. Do you want to live without the guilty weight of sin weighing upon you, tormenting your conscience, leaving you with the sense of guilt and shame that always comes with the life of sin? Do you want to put off the desires in your heart that you know are plaguing you, that you know are keeping you from walking in peace with others and with God? Then you must look to Christ alone. He is your only hope. And when that happens, we see what Paul shows us in our final point this morning in verse 11, that fighting sin and living like a Christian will radically change how we see all of the world around us. Now, what does all of this have to do with Paul's final statement here? Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. What does that have to do with anything else? Well, the sign in your life of unmortified sin, sin that you have not dealt with in your heart, the sign of that in a believer is when the first thing you notice about a brother or sister in Christ is something that you can see with your eyes and not that Christ is in their heart. What's the first thing that we notice about each other that gives us our final assessment of one another? If it's not Christ and all that he is for us, there is a worldliness lingering about our hearts. Now, of course, Paul was taking direct aim at the prejudices of his day. The Jews and Greeks were at odds with one another, but it shouldn't be so in the church. The circumcised versus the uncircumcised, the barbarians, the Scythians, the slaves, the free, all at odds with one another, but in the church it ought not be. And today for us, Whether you have billions of dollars and three private jets or you're struggling to keep a roof over your head, whether you have six college degrees or an eighth grade education, whether you were born in China or India or the Sudan or Mexico or even Canada. I see you back there, brother. Believe it or not, these outward distinctions mean a lot to the world But to the Christian, we put it all away. We walk together because we are together 
in Christ because Christ is in all and is in us. We put it all away because we've been made new. And we've been made new, not just me and Jesus, but me with God's people, all standing equally at the foot of the cross in need of the same Savior who offers the same forgiveness and the same redemption to His people who carry the same capacity for the propensity towards sin that everyone else does, no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from, and no matter what they do for a living. When we can eliminate the garbage and start fighting sin in our own lives, and start living as Christians are called to live, we start seeing everyone else a lot differently, don't we? Because we start to see just how dark things can get in our own hearts, and all those false judgments, all those prejudices that seemed so real to us before, are now viewed in light of who I really am, and what I'm really capable of apart from Christ. And let me tell you, it's not pretty. Putting off sin and living in Christ changes us radically. It changes how we see the world radically. And so we must acknowledge our sin for what it is in its reality. Not only acknowledge our sin, but know the principles of spiritual mastery. And it seems that Paul is saying, very clearly, put it all away. And we want to say, sure thing, Paul. Now, just one small matter we need to deal with. Can you please tell me how to do that? But you see, brethren, he's telling us all along. Very quickly, I know we're out of time. Just four points. I'm just going to run through them. How do I put off? How do I put away all of these things that so easily entangle and ensnare me in my sin? First, admit your sin for what it really is. We talked about this a bit last week. Don't think, well, my repentance needs to be because of a specific instance of a specific thing that I did. But it needs to be dealing instead with an actual idol itself. Cut through the word or the deed and get to the foundation. Stop chopping off limbs. Get to the root. Your biggest problem isn't that you glanced a little too long at someone at the grocery store. The problem is that your heart is bound up in lust. That's an idol, and you need to repent of the idol itself and not that specific instance. Get to the root. Admit your sin for what it actually is. Secondly, Paul reminds us in verse 6 that we need to see our sin from God's perspective. Remember, he said, the wrath of God is coming. My temptation is to compare my sins to others and think, it's not all that bad. But Paul says, see it all in God's eyes. And we have a very practical way to be reminded of how God sees it, don't we? It's so obvious, maybe you're not even thinking about it right now. How do we know how significant our sin is to God? Think about the cross. How serious is my sin? It's so serious, it's so significant that it took nothing less than the death of Christ that I might be forgiven, that I might not bear it any longer. Do I see my sin from that perspective? Thirdly, Paul reminds us to remember who you are. Your identity is not your socioeconomic status. It's not your job, your family, your ethnicity, your anything. When you are a Christian, your identity is in Christ alone. Your identity as a Christian is in Christ. Remember that, Christian. Remember who you are so you can live as who you are. And lastly, Paul teaches us to starve our sin of opportunity. You really want to put off your sin? Starve it to death. 
If you have particular idols that continue to plague you, what are you doing about them? That's what I want to leave us all with this morning. How are you putting off sin in your life? What's at work through you? What specific things are you working through to put off? Trust the Lord. Abide in Christ. Commune with God through the means of grace. And you begin to see that your desires will be transformed. And what once seemed impossible to walk away from will slowly become more and more distasteful in your mouth as you focus your gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you wanting to put off? How are you going to do it?